am I, am I working on? Can you hear me okay? I, I switched it. Okay. Good. We're good to go. It's uh, just one thing I've got to add to this. It's kind of funny how men act together, encourage each other. So this morning, one of our fellow brothers, he tells me, he said, Hey, Tom, I want to give you a little encouragement for your sermon today. I said, Great. I need it. Give it to me. He said, Don't blow it. I said, Thanks. That's just what I needed. So I'm going to try not to blow this. And, um, and uh, I, I, I told him I would not go off track. I would not uh, do anything else. But I will go off track here just for a second to tell you that the, the whole morning, uh, what we prayed about uh, to see God's providence at work, the morning prayer and, and even our music and, and the, the scripture that we've read, it all just blends in with the sermon today. So it's just amazing to see God at work in doing things. He prepped all this. He knew all this. It's in His providence that this morning has come about. So give glory to God for, for, uh, for this morning. So um, the topic entitled of today's sermon is The Believer's Relationship to the Law. The Believer's Relationship to the Law. So what is our relationship to the law as believers? Does the law have any place in our life as New Testament believers under grace? Does the law belong in the believer's life? So these, these questions for us believers, these are questions that we all must wrestle with and settle in our mind. And the reason is this. It's because it would seem that there are two main pillars of biblical truth, biblical Christianity that are opposed to each other. And these two pillars of truth are grace and the law. Because they seem that they are opposed to each other. For example, the law, it always seems to be tied to wrath, condemnation, slavery, sin, and death. While the other, grace, seems to be associated with love, restoration, freedom, forgiveness, and life. One seems bad, the other seems good. One seems hopeless, while the other is full of hope. One is works-based, the other is a free gift. One is bad news, the other is good news. So they appear to be in opposition to each other, rendering different effects upon us. But I would ask you this, are they? Are they? Are they so at odds with each other that we should cling to one and abhor the other. Cherish the good and discard the bad. Or do these two biblical truths complement each other? Do they complement each other in that they both bring glory to God while working good in the believer? Does grace operating in the life of the believer glorify God while benefiting the believer? Well, we would all say yes and yes. But what about the law? Does the law operating in the life of the believer glorify God and benefit the believer? We would say yes to that too. So while these two biblical forces that seem to be opposed to each other could it be that they're really meant to be used together as friends as they work in the life of the believer? After all, they are both linked to faith. They both have a humbling effect upon us. Both help us in our maturity. And both reshape us and hone us into the image of Christ who was the perfect law keeper. Now, since we are being conformed into His image, we should ask, well, what was His relationship to the law? What was Christ's relationship to the law? Did He disregard the law? Did He despise the law? Did He have a low view of the law? Did He ignore the law? Well, to all those, we would all say no, no. In fact, you might say that Christ Himself was the law because He lived the law perfectly that he is a picture of the law. But unfortunately, among the Christian community today, there is a negative 
view of the law or a low view of the law. We hear this statement often among Christian brothers. We are no longer under the law. Now that statement, I cringe when I hear it because most of the time when they say that, they really don't know what they're saying. We are no longer under the law. And that statement's usually followed up pretty quickly in somewhat of a proud and boastful way as as if to smite the law. They say, we are under grace. We're no longer under the law, we're under grace. They like to claim that we have freedom in Christ through faith by grace. Therefore, the law is of no consequence to us. You'll hear things like the law, uh, to bring in the law is to encroach upon grace. The law has been done away with because of Christ. The law is the old covenant which has been replaced by the new covenant of grace. The law represents the wrath of God while grace represents the love of God. Now these statements, if you just look at them, they're true. I mean, we we believe those statements. But unfortunately, this, this... cast this negative view upon the law that's really not deserving. And this negative view of the law, this is nothing new. It's been around for years. Formerly it was known to us as antinomianism. Now, antinomianism means this, the definition. Christians, believers, are released by grace from the obligation of observing the moral law. That's what the antinomian would believe. That because of grace, we are, uh, we are released and we no longer have to observe. Now, get the law, the, what law he says here, the moral law. And we'll have more on that in a little bit. So the antinomian view is to totally disregard the law and that the moral law of the Ten Commandments. So they'll quote Scripture. They'll say the law is a curse, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who has hanged on a tree. They'll say grace replaced the law. They'll use Romans 5.20. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. They'll say we're released from the law, Romans 7, 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old of the written code, the old. They'll say we are free in Christ. Galatians 5, 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So those are all good verses and... Um, We must consider that and what they really mean. But then what they really do to kind of put the nail in the coffin is they'll bring up that word that we gets all of our attention, legalism, that the law is legalism. There is this thought that to link together any aspects of the law to free grace Christianity is legalism. And again, they'll offer scripture to support their argument. Galatians 5, 4 You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Romans 3.28 For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 11.6 For if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Again, good scripture. Good arguments for grace. These are strong arguments for grace, and they teach the glory of grace. But in saying these, do they also teach that we are to do away with the law? Do they teach or imply that when one comes to Christ by grace through faith, that the standards of the moral law from the Ten Commandments have no place in the life of the believer? Now... Really, if you think about it, that seems a bit irrational to go that far with that. If that code of moral existence is the very character and nature of the image that we are being transformed into, then how can you say that the law has no place in the life of the believer? You see, the issue develops here. When the law is thought of as our enemy, 
or the law is considered irrelevant, or even worse, thinking, Lord forbid that any of us would think this, that because of grace, we are free to live however we want. We are free to live however we want without any regard to the moral law. So, with that said, just what does the law play in the life of the believer? What is its role? Now, I'm going to attempt to answer this for us, but I do have to state two things that is very important for you to understand. One is, we need to understand what law it is that I'm speaking of. And two, we need to understand that I am not speaking of justification by obedience. Justification is by grace alone. Hear me out on that. Justification is by grace alone. Salvation, by grace alone. So let's cover the first point first in this introduction. Let's understand what I mean when I say or I speak of the law. The law we're talking about today. When I say the law, I'm speaking of the moral code that was impressed upon all of mankind at creation. It's basic moral principles that the Creator placed in us when He formed us. When He made us into His image, as Scripture says He did, He placed in us a moral code that would represent His image. Now, these same moral principles that were impressed upon us at creation, they were later written down by God in a legal commandment form And we know that to be the Ten Commandments. So when I refer to the law today, I'm referring referring to that moral code that is written upon all of mankind and is known more commonly to us as the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments. Okay, so that's the law I'm speaking of today. It does not include this. It does not include the ceremonial law or the civil law that was put in place for the nation of Israel. What are those? Quickly. The ceremonial laws had to do with their temple-based worship of God. It governed the how, when, where of such things as the sacrifices, the festivals, the feasts, the washings, purifications, and all the rituals in and around the temple. Christians are not no longer required are not required to honor those ceremonial rules. Why? We all know the answer to that. All that was done away with with Christ. Now, I don't have the time today to fully explain that out, but let me just give you a few examples. The sacrificial system, which was the highlight of their worship, and it was a highlight because it dealt with sin, dealt with their sin. It's no longer needed. We all know why we have the ultimate, final, perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. The Passover. We don't do the Passover. What do we do? We do the Lord's Supper. Our Passover is the Lord's Supper, and it's when we remember Christ um, and His blood shed on the cross. The law of separation. We're no longer separated, but we're all one in Christ, both Jew and Gentile alike. Those things have been done away with. And I want to also bring this to your attention. You probably know this, but nowhere in the New Testament are we called to practice any of those ceremonial laws. In fact, what you find in the New Testament is you find Paul firmly preaching against them because who followed him around in all those churches trying to tell the Gentile churches, oh, you must do this and you must do this. If you really want to be saved, you got to do this and these ceremonial laws... And they really wanted to do the most prized thing of, that they held up high, which was circumcision. But what do we know of circumcision? That in that first big church council meeting on settling some essential doctrine, that council meeting was known as the Jerusalem Council. Circumcision, along with all the rest of the ceremonial laws, were officially done away with. In that council meeting... The Jewish leaders, these are Jewish leaders, meeting with Paul, you remember in Acts, they write a letter to the Gentile churches regarding the necessity of obeying the ceremonial laws. And they said this, Acts 15, 28 through 29. That letter says, For it seemed 
as for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Boom. End. Ceremonial laws are gone. Just do these. So when I say the law today, I'm not speaking of the ceremonial laws that you find in the Old Testament. Also, I'm not including the civil law or judicial rules that were set in place specifically for the nation of Israel. Now remember, the nation of Israel, when they received those, they were getting ready to go into the promised land. They had been in Egypt for all those years. What civil law and judicial laws did they know? The Egyptian civil laws and the the laws and rules of the nations around them. Pagan, sinful Canaanites. So they needed some new rules and laws, and God gave them those rules and laws, how to govern themselves as their own country, as their own nation, that would be centered upon temple-based worship with strict ceremonial laws. Those judicial laws, those civil laws, we are no longer under. We're under our own government civil laws, and we're told to obey those laws where you live, and we can now worship Christ wherever we live because we're all one in Christ. So the law I speak of today does not refer to the ceremonial laws, does not refer to those civil judicial laws that were for the nation of Israel. It is the law, it is the moral code that was given to mankind at creation summarized in those Ten Commandments. Now, it's important for us to all remember this and understand this about this moral law. It has been with us since creation. We got those laws with Moses in a written form of what was placed in us as a moral code of living, which is why Scripture says we are without excuse. How else can that be said of of us unless we were aware of those basic understanding of moral living without a written form? But man has always known, even before the stone tablets. And what have they have known is this. They've always known that they are to love God, to honor God, and to worship God alone. They've always known that murder, adultery, lying, cheating, coveting, stealing is wrong. Consider, for example, how did Cain know it was wrong to murder his brother? How did the pagan Egyptian king Abimelech know it was wrong to have Sarah? Because when he found out that she was the wife of Abraham and not his sister, he was scared to death for his life. This beautiful woman was another man's wife, and he sent her back quickly. How did Job know to make a covenant with his eyes regarding lust? Well, it should be obvious. We had a moral code imprinted upon us of how to live and conduct ourselves. After all, we were made in the image of God. You would think it only stands to reason that we would have some of his characteristics in that image. Thus, we are without excuse and we are all held accountable for rebelling against that moral code, and that's called sin. Paul makes it clear in Romans when he speaks of God's invisible attributes and divine nature, he says this in Romans 1, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish thoughts were dark in claiming to be wise, they became fools. You ever want to substitute that last sentence in claiming to be wise, we became, leave out the they and say we, we became fools. That's that's a side, sorry. Um, So guilt and shame exist. Because we know better instinctively. And these moral codes are in us instinctively. It is said of Adam 
that in shame and fear that they hid themselves from God. You remember that. Adam blames it on their nakedness. But the reality is they knew they had broken that moral code, that moral law. They knew they had rebelled against the one who made them. They knew they were guilty for they had failed to love God in their disobedience. They sought to worship themselves to be like God and they dishonored His very name by listening to Satan. So they felt shame and they felt guilt and in a sense, they murdered God. How so? Because to reverse the effect that they brought about upon all their posterity, God would go to the cross and give His life through His Son, Jesus Christ. So mankind knows the moral law instinctively. So the law I speak of today is that moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments. Now, the second point we all must know, please hear me out, that justification is by grace alone. It's very important that you catch that. I am not teaching obedience to the law to gain your salvation, nor am I teaching it to maintain your salvation. To suggest that is works. That's legalism, and it's not biblical. Paul clears that up for us in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Well, here at our church, Maranatha Baptist Church, we teach this. We teach that we are justified, sanctified, and glorified by grace alone. We teach that the glorious gospel begins with grace, and it ends with grace. And it all, all of it is centered upon Jesus Christ and the works of Jesus Christ. We teach that we bring nothing to the table of salvation except our sin. We offer nothing. We have no works to offer. We hold fast to those five solas that say we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which is according to Scripture alone. And all that is for one purpose, to glorify God alone. So hear me loud and clear. I am not saying you must obey the moral law, those Ten Commandments, to gain your salvation. Now this only makes sense because here at our church we also teach the total depravity of man. That man is completely void of doing anything towards his salvation because of his spiritual deadness, his spiritual dead state. So... To suggest obedience to the law to bring about salvation, it just doesn't make sense if you understand the full, complete spiritual deadness of man. Why would you teach or even think obedience to the law for salvation when it's utterly impossible to achieve since all are born spiritually dead? That's what the Jews did. That's what Saul did. They taught obedience for justification. And they never saw themselves as lawbreakers unable to keep the law. So, I mean, think about this. It doesn't make sense to ask a dead person, a corpse, to do anything. You wouldn't go up to a dead corpse and ask it to do anything. You can't. the, The corpse can't. It's impossible. Well, likewise, it seems rather foolish to ask a spiritually dead person to do something spiritual like perfectly obey all the law of God, which, by the way, is also spiritual. It just doesn't make sense. This is to expect the flesh to do something spiritual when it has no spiritual ability whatsoever. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 7 regarding the law and the spiritual nature of the law. Romans seven fourteen. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints, of marrow, and discerning the thoughts of the intentions of the heart. You see the inward working of the law, of the Word of God. Romans 7.22, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Now the rich young ruler, he thought that he could gain justification through his obedience. He sincerely and genuinely asked Christ, what else must I do 
what else must I do over and above his years of, quote, obedience? He's obeyed since a child, he says. This poor guy, he's so fleshly and so spiritually dead that he can't see or understand that he has not even obeyed the first and second commandment, much less the rest of them. And he asked Jesus what else he must do. Well, just like Nicodemus, deep down inside, they knew something was amiss. They knew something was missing. They knew that it just wasn't quite right, their obedience to the law. Guilt and shame is the problem. They still had guilt and shame. No relief. Martin Luther, if any of y'all ever read any of the stories about Martin Luther, he suffered from the same thing. It's what drove him to discover grace. And God, in His grace, opened Luther's eyes to God's wonderful grace. Luther starts out as a, as a monk. He's um, a Franciscan monk, one of the most severe kind. And he is um, working hard as a monk to gain his salvation and to get relief from his guilt with his works, extreme works. He would do things like uh, he'd have a sinful thought and he'd go stand in the snow with no shoes on for eight hours. He would starve himself almost to death in fasting. And just every day, Martin Luther was in misery with his shame and his guilt for his sin. Not that he actually carried any of those out, but he just had this thought life that was just driving him crazy. And the shame and guilt was there. And he was seeking relief. The, the, the head monks banned him from the confession booth because he basically took up residence in one. He would, he would spend hours there and leave and 20 minutes later come back. And they finally said, get, get out of here. You're, go. He could find no relief from his guilt and his shame for that sin that remained in him until the Lord opened his eyes to grace. So, it doesn't make sense to preach any type of works to obedience, and especially obedience to the Ten Commandments, for salvation when it just can't be done. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, as yet, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So if that's the case, it's impossible. What are we to do? What, what, what do we do? If we won't obey, we don't obey, and we don't want to obey. We don't want to obey this moral law that's instinctively in us. And now to make matters worse, it's written down for us, so we just read it. It's right there in our face. It makes our sinfulness even more offensive. Romans 5.20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You see there, we are not left without hope. Praise be to God for His grace. For what is impossible for man is made possible by God. We cry out to God. We beg Him for His mercy. We do what that publican did when he beat his chest at the throne of God. He wouldn't even look up at it. And he said, Oh God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. We look to Jesus Christ for our salvation. We trust in Him to not only save us, but to hold us in His salvation. And by grace, He saves us. He opens our eyes and our ears, granting us repentance and faith in Him. So please get this. I am not saying obedience to the law is required for your salvation. I'm not saying that it causes your salvation. I'm not saying that it plays any part in your salvation. Nor am I saying it is required to maintain your salvation. All of that is by grace and grace alone. So those are the ground rules for understanding today's sermon. The law means the moral law, that you know by the Ten Commandments, and justification is by grace alone, not by works. Back to our original question. So what is the believer's relationship to the law? Now what I want to hope, hope to show you today is that the law is not your enemy. I hope to give you a new and heightened appreciation of the law. I hope to make you aware of the importance of the law in the life of the believer and how to use it. I hope that we might all look upon the law as the psalmist 
did when he wrote in Psalm 119, verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. So we're going to cover five points, and we'll do that now, but pray with me as we start. Father, as we look into the purpose of your precious, holy, and spiritual law, we pray you would form in our hearts a love and a desire for it so that we might honor you and glorify you with our obedience. Our Lord God, may your law be a delight for us. And may we seek to obey your law, not for our justification, but rather, Lord, because of our justification. Help us to make your law our delight. Amen. All right, I want to give you five points on why the law is essential to the believer. Five points. You have the title of them there, I believe, in your handout. The first one is holiness and righteousness. We covered holiness what the amazing thing of the providence of God this morning in prayer. We are called to live and be holy. As believers or followers of Christ, we are called to be righteous and holy. We're expected to pursue righteousness and holiness in how we conduct ourselves and live in this world. 1 Peter 1.14 As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now look, when you read that verse, that's Peter. Peter does not just make that as a suggestion. That is a command from Peter. It's an imperative. When he quotes Leviticus, that you are to be holy, for I am holy, here's what he's really saying. He's telling us that God is our example. And that is how we should conduct ourselves. So, okay, we all see that. We, are, we would all agree, yeah, we're to be holy. But the next question we've got to ask, well, how do you do that? What does that look like? What are the, what's the guideline to be holy? What's the method? How am I supposed to conduct myself that would be classified as holy conduct? Do I get to make up my own standard? No. The Scripture tells us what holy living is. And guess what? The building blocks of that is. The Ten Commandments. As a believer, you can still use the law as you seek to live a holy life. Use it for your good as you work to be more Christ-like. What about righteousness? Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What is this righteousness that we are to hunger for and to seek and thirst for? Again, relying on Scripture, what do we find? That the master of righteousness is Jesus Christ. Now, we ought to think about this for a minute. <clears throat> it is the righteousness of Christ that God sees in us when He looks at us. As a believer, we are declared righteous based on His righteousness. So since we have no righteousness of our own, but now we have the righteousness of Christ, it's being applied to us, shouldn't we conduct ourselves in that same righteousness that's the righteousness of Christ? Not to gain approval, not to gain approval, but to honor Christ and honor what He has given us. So how is it that Christ is righteous so that we can conduct ourselves like He did? Well, certainly in several ways. But do you, it, it, it's just not hard to think that certainly we would think of this, that He was obedient to His Father and He was obedient to the law. So if He was obedient to the law... Shouldn't we be? He's righteous. We should too. And that should be one of our guidelines for thirsting for righteousness. We know Christ to be the only perfect, the only, only perfect keeper of the law. Thus he was sinless because he was this perfect law of people. And because of that, he's also righteous. 
So if I am called to be righteous in my conduct, then a good place to start would be to use the law to guide me in righteous living. As believers in Christ, we can use the law as that guide, and thus we can show ourselves to be followers of Christ. So we work out our salvation pursuing holiness. We work out our salvation seeking righteousness, thirsting and hungering for righteousness. And we can be thankful that we have the law as a building block in doing so and in living a more sanctified life. All right, second point, heaven. What will heaven be like? Well, we'd all say this probably real quick, a place without pain and suffering. Place without joy, a place with joy, a place with contentment. But we would all say this, it's a place without sin. Now think of that for a moment, a place where there is no breaking of the moral code. There's no breaking of the Ten Commandments. Remember, that's what sin is. No sin in heaven. So how would you answer a person who came up and he asked you and he said, well, what does that look like? How, how, what would that, a place with no sin, what, how would you describe that? Where, a place where all the people would have no influence of sin in their mind or in their heart. The very nature of people would know no sin. How would you describe that to a person who asks you that question? I want you each to ponder that question for a minute. Just in your mind, just, you don't have to say it out loud. How would you answer that? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm willing to wager that most of you thought something like this. Well, all the people there would love God so fully, so completely, and so perfectly that there would be no idol worship, there'd be no taking the Lord's name in vain, and every day would be a Sabbath rest. Due to the actual presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I think all of you would say this to that answer. The people would all love each other so fully, so completely, and so perfect that they would all honor each other as their own mother and father, they would, there would be no murder, no adultery, no lying, no stealing, and no coveting. That's heaven. That's heaven. But what really makes heaven heaven is that those moral laws are finally fulfilled because no one even thinks of such things. It's not on your mind. Sin is not present because it's not present in the inward being of the person. It's impossible for them to sin in heaven. It's not in their nature. It's not in their ability to do that. The very thought of sin never enters their mind. In heaven, all those rules are now funneled into what's called the law of love. We will all love God. And we will all love His neighbor in a holy, in a righteous, in a perfect way. So while the written law shows us our sin plainly, it also reveals the glory of heaven. Use the law to remind you of the glory of heaven. Use the law to think about this is what it's going to be like in my eternal home. Treasure the law, for it trains us for that heavenly domain, which is our blessed hope. The Puritans taught their congregants that while believers remain on earth, they are to prepare themselves for heaven. Amen. We've been hearing from the pastor, be ready, and the men should be preparing their family for what? To take them to heaven. Well, you prepare them for, to take them to heaven by training them in righteous and holy living. In other words, while we remain... We are training ourselves and our families for heavenly citizenship, a place where there is no sin. Those rules are no longer needed. Third point, the image of Christ. We're told in Scripture that we're being transformed into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Romans 8, 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined 
to be conformed into the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. In Romans 12, 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you get the picture with these verses? A believer is a new creation. There's something new and different about the believer. This new creation that was once bound in sin, that was once spiritually dead, is now alive. He's alive spiritually, and he's free from the death grip of sin. And listen to this. He is predestined. In other words, he's God-ordained. It will happen to be conformed into the image of Christ. A believer will be conformed, transformed into the image of Christ. How do we do that? That Romans 12 verse that we read. Transformed by the renewing of our mind with those things that are good, acceptable, and perfect according to God. Well, what is good and acceptable and perfect according to God? Because this is God's will for you as you work transforming your mind. Well, while you're here on earth, we're still subject to our sinful flesh and the sinful world that we live in. We're exposed to sin all around us as well as what remains in us. But we have these tools to aid in this renewing of our mind, to work in our sanctification, to keep ourselves from sin, to test our motives, and to discern what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect according to the will of God. And one of those tools, one of those great tools is the law. Because that law is perfect. The law, it's the same law that is a picture of the very character of the one that we are being transformed into. Christ is a picture of the law. And we are being transformed into His image. That law, you see, that law that I once hated that once had a death sentence on my head, I am now so grateful for. Because without it, I would not know what I've been saved from. That law that exposed my sin and caused me shame and guilt is also the very same law that caused me to say, oh, I am truly a sinner through and through. That law that so agitated me, that drove me to my knees seeking relief, seeking a Savior, seeking mercy, because those Ten Commandments that I kept breaking were more than I could live up to. I was in despair. Those same, that law, those same Ten Commandments pushed me to the cross where looking upon Jesus Christ, hanging there dead on that cross as my sin payment, as result of me breaking the law, grace found me. And that law that I once viewed as my enemy became my friend. And it took on a whole new meaning. Because here's why. So, now I see the law fulfilled in Christ on the cross. That moral law is summarized in those Ten Commandments are overshadowed in the law of love in Jesus Christ. Christ first loved the Father and He obeyed Him all the way to the cross. And then Christ loved me so much that even though He was not guilty of breaking a single one of those commandments and I had broken all of them, He still paid the price with His life as if He had. So fellow believers, use the law to renew your mind and work to be transformed into the image of the perfect law keeper who was Jesus Christ. Four, obedience and love. Mankind was created to obey. He was created by His Creator, to obey the Creator. The whole reason we're in this sinful mess is because of disobedience. 
even as New Testament believers. New Testament believers, as we are under grace, we are still called to obey and expected to obey. As a believer, you're known by your love for Christ. And Christ makes it crystal clear His thoughts of love and obedience. In fact, He links them together in these verses. John 14, 15, this is Christ speaking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, that's pretty clear. That's pretty clear. Somebody says, oh, you don't have to obey. What do you do with this verse? What about 15, 14? You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, you all know there are several other verses that speaks of love of Christ and obeying His commandment, but those are pretty clear. It's clear that believers saved by grace, they manifest their love with their obedience. So it's biblically correct to assume that the one who loves God and is a friend of God is also obedient. The believer is obedient, hear me out, not to gain his salvation, but because of his salvation. He just can't help himself but to obey. Call it a side effect. Medicines have side effects. Hey, take this pill. It'll fix that, but, but beware, it's going to cause this also. You're going to get a headache. or Take this, and it'll take your pain away, but it's going to make you drowsy. Well, by grace you've been saved, and you've been given a new heart that sees Christ, and you love Him now as Savior and Lord. But there's a side effect of that new heart that you've been given, and that side effect is called obedience. That love for Christ will cause obedience. But that brings the next question. Well, what is it we're to obey? What are, do we get to make up our own rules to obey, to love Christ? Well, no, we find our parameters again in the Word of God. And guess what's the basic building blocks? The commandments. The moral law, the Ten Commandments. If you're not obeying the Ten Commandments, then why would you do the other things? Do those first. Obey the Ten Commandments. Because what you're going to find out is all the other commands rest upon those Ten Commandments. They're all part of the Ten Commandments. All the commands, both Old and New Testament, have a connection to those Ten. Study those Ten Commandments. Study the Sermon on the Mount. Study what it means to love God. Study what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And don't disregard the basic building blocks. Treasure them. Be thankful for them. Seek to obey them while you remain here on earth. When you examine yourself, as Scripture calls us to do, asking, do I really love Jesus? Is Jesus my Lord and Savior? Do I love Him? One marker of that as you examine yourself is, are you obeying Him? And what would you look to to see what you're obeying? Well, the obvious thing that would stick out in your mind, well, I'm still disobeying the Ten Commandments. But you can go to Him and repent of, but you're working towards being more and more obedient to those basic building blocks, that moral code that is still in us, that it was written down for us, so it would be right there for us. A great place to begin obeying Jesus by obeying the Ten Commandments. And then finally, my last point, point is... Love, the summation of the law. Look, because we remain in our sinful flesh and we're in this sinful world, we still don't love Jesus perfectly. We still struggle. So God has blessed us with these commandments and these rules and precepts. They guide us. They restrain us. They move us forward towards the place where we will all one day love perfectly. We will be able to love God perfectly. Heaven where true love will be finally fully manifested by us. How so? How will that be manifested in us? Fellow believers, by obedience to the Ten Commandments. In heaven, we will live out all those Ten Commandments, first towards God, then towards each other, but guess what? We'll do it naturally, inwardly. Our love will be so perfect that there will no longer be a need for the commandments. We will love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so much so that we would not even entertain the thought of an idol, of cursing God. Christ will be our highest affection. 
We'll not even be able to think or act or love in any other way. We'll love our neighbor perfectly so that there's no need of those commandments. There won't be the desire to do so. And here's the glory of it. We will finally be fully formed in the image of our Creator, Jesus Christ. And no more than He needs the law to guide and restrain Him, we won't either because we will be fully formed into His image. Love is swallowed up. The law is swallowed up in love. It will be our very nature and our very will. Love fulfills all the law. But in knowing that, in the Scripture verse that says that, I want you to note the reference here to the moral law in this verse, Romans 13. Oh, no one nothing except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, here we go, the commandments, which ones? You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, they are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. My fellow believers who are saved by grace and grace alone, don't ignore the precious law lest you forget what you have been saved from and neglect the work of killing out the sin that remains in you. Do not snuff out the light that lights the path unto your feet, lest you trip and fall and injure yourself. Do not neglect this God-given tool that we have to train ourselves for heavenly citizenship. It is by grace that God gave us the law to show us our sin and our need for a Savior who is Christ. It is by grace that God gives us the law to continue with us as we strive in our sinful flesh and in a sinful world to help us walk out our life as a believer in Christ. So what is the believer's relationship to Christ? It's a relationship, excuse me, what is the believer's relationship to the law? It's a relationship to cherish, to delight in, to learn how to love as Christ loved, to learn learn to love the law and to use it and study it for your good and your reminder of what it will be like in heaven. Thank you.